I invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, and turn back to the book of Acts for now. We're going to hit a number of passages today, a little less, my friend, still. If we organized at Faith Baptist Church a conference on failure and disappointment, do you think anyone would come? If I wrote a book on, this, on that subject, I'm not really sure if anyone would buy it. Um, failure and disappointment are not popular topics. They don't sell tickets and books. They don't generate clicks, as uh, internet marketers assure us. Um, we don't like to very often think about our own failures, much less the failures of others. Um, as David Murray said, we live in a success culture that idolizes victory and fulfillment. But it's all so unreal, he says. All you have to do is what we're going to do today. We turn to the Bible and we're given a deep dose of reality. Failure and disappointment are on just about every page of Scripture. Whether we take it or, or like it or not, that's far more true than the success narratives that our culture feeds us or the ones that we try to write ourselves to make ourselves feel better. By all means, may I encourage you to aim high in all of your aspirations in life, but recognize at the same time that no one, and I mean that, no one escapes failure or disappointment. Adam and Eve, the first people created, rebelled against God. Failure. Cain and Abel, there was murder. Noah and his sons, drunkenness. Abraham lied twice about his wife to save his own skin. Lot and his daughters committed incest. Jacob and Esau had family rivalry. Joseph and his brothers were combative and betrayed him. Nadab and Abihu disrespected God and he struck them dead. Aaron and Miriam of all people were jealous of Moses' popularity and in with God and she was struck with leprosy. Uh, Moses himself the greatest man in the Old Testament disobeyed God publicly when he smote the rock and never got in the promised land. Achan took the stuff God told him not to, and he and his family were killed. Samson and Delilah, he was guilty of lust. Eli and his sons, Samuel and his sons were ungodly. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Peter denied Jesus three times. Ananias and Sapphira lied about giving money to the church. I mean, and on and on and on the list goes. So how can we, knowing that failure is inescapable on some level, how can we plan on it? How can we purpose for it? How can we profit from it? And may I ask you point blank this morning, and what about your kids? I mean, our kids know algebra and they know chemistry, but do they know how to handle failure? Because they're going to face it. Do we know how to? Do you know how to handle failure? Failure comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's not a failure that's sinful, but sometimes it is. And as you look through the pages of Scripture and about society and even in church, you'll find that family Failure comes in the family size. Uh, there's family failures, there's friendship failures, there's spiritual failures, doctrinal failures, moral failures, worship failures, marriage failures, leadership, ecclesiastical failures, financial failures, national political failures. I mean, and on and on again it goes. 
Today, we're going to take a few minutes in our sermon today and talk about John Mark. He gives us, the scripture gives us what I call a few journal entries about the life of someone who failed. The big picture, if I can lay it out for you to get a little back background about John Mark and who he was and what led up to his failure, um, he grew up in a good Jewish home. Um, some says that his home is the one that welcomed Jesus and his disciples. The Bible says that there was a room that Jesus asked on his last Passover in Jerusalem that the disciples would go ahead of time. And remember, the guy would come by and he had the pitcher of water. And if you follow him, then you'll tell him the master has need of this room. And it was called the upper room. Now, that same upper room is described in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And that's the house of John Mark and his mom, who's named Mary. So some commentators have put it together that the room they often used and stayed in at times in Jerusalem when they were in town there was the home of John Mark. Possibly that's true. Acts 12.12 makes it very clear that there was a place where Peter went to after he was miraculously released by the angel. He went to the home of John Mark. It it, it says that. It seems to be the place you went to to kind of have safety and security. And so if indeed all of that is true, John Mark grew up as a young man, and he knew Jesus. Um, He knew the disciples. Later on, at the end of his ministry, Peter calls John Mark his son in the faith. So it wouldn't be surprising if Peter was around him all the time that they had the kind of relationship that they did. So imagine, growing up, Jesus comes to your house from time to time. You get to see him. You know the disciples, and you know Peter personally. I mean, he grew up around spiritual things. He grew up around spiritual people. His mom's name, as Acts 12.12 says, is Mary. There are numerous Marys in the Bible. She is mentioned by name. A lot of women are not. It distinguishes her from Mary, the mother of Jesus. But a lot of Marys are clumped together at certain times. And perhaps she's one of them. So maybe they were fairly close to Jesus' family. Believe it or not, John Mark's cousin was Barnabas, yes, of Barnabas and Paul. Colossians 4.10 says that they had a relational thing as cousins. John Mark grew up in the first church that ever existed. He went to the first church, heard some of the greatest preaching that you could ever hear, and we're not sure, but Acts 2 says, in the house that they were staying in, which leads us to believe that that was probably John Mark's house because it seems like that they were doing most everything out of that house. And he might have been there on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came, and maybe he witnessed that. He certainly witnessed Peter coming at night when he was delivered miraculously from jail, from the angel. I mean, here's a guy who grew up in a family that loved God, came to know Jesus, hung around the disciples, part of the early church, saw some of the most amazing events the early church had to offer. In fact, some even go so far as to say, if you want to take the time and read Mark 14, the gospel that Mark wrote... In chapter 14, 51, and 52, it says when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it kind of just throws these two verses in. There was a young man who had a cloak on. The Roman soldiers went to grab him too, grabbed it. He dropped the coat and ran off without hardly any clothes on. Now, it never mentions his name. It's just that he was a young man. Almost every commentator I've ever read believes that was Mark himself because he's the author of that gospel, and he didn't want to say his name. So imagine that. I mean, he knows Jesus, but he knows Jesus. He was in the garden. He saw him arrested. He heard, saw the transaction. I mean, amazing. Listen, right? Amazing spiritual background. So with all that in mind, 
Look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. This will be no shocker whatsoever. 12.25 reads, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now they're going to go on their first missionary journey, and they're going to be commissioned by the church at Antioch. And you know who they want to be their assistant is? Number one choice, John Mark. Well, of course, because he's Barnabas' cousin. He knows Peter and the disciples. He spent time with Jesus. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, although he ran. Keep that in mind. Maybe it was the first time. He has all this going for him. But that's not the shocker. You know what the real shocker is in his life? It's chapter 13 and verse 13, if you look at it. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them. And return to Jerusalem. See the text I read through the scripture reading? This is a big problem. Because in this text, John goes AWOL. John Mark leaves them. He doesn't want to go to the work. And you look at his life and say, that can't be possible. I mean, look at all the spiritual blessings and benefits and background he had. I mean, look at all he had going for him. I mean, he had his, the best possible everything, spirituality, you could possibly imagine all the people and atmosphere and church. I mean, he had it all. But here's the first chance he gets. Listen, with Barnabas and Paul, who would become, is the greatest Christian ever, he gets to go on the first missionary journey that ever happened to the Gentiles. What happened? Well, let me tell you this. If you're going to face failure biblically... You're going to have to know the four facts about failure. And the first one is this. Failure, it makes no exceptions. There is no one who is immune from it. Failure is like COVID-19. Anyone can get it. It doesn't matter who you are, what position you hold, young or old, good health, bad health, a man or a woman. See, anyone can get the the. the, the the bacteria, the COVID-19, right? And the same thing is true for failure. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or you're a deacon. It doesn't matter whether you've been in this position or how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much scripture you know. See, there's no guarantee. There's no vaccine for faithful, for, for, for failure. God's family, it's good to grow up in a good family, to grow up in a good church. It's good to have good spiritual godly friends, but it is no guarantee that you will be faithful and not fail. I, I, I probably my favorite book series and even the movies. I, I really enjoy Lord of the Rings. So many scriptural inferences to it and such. But you know, I, I love watching Frodo. It's amazing all that he goes through. I mean, this little hobbit that no one expected to be able to do anything. He gets the most important task to get rid of the ring of power in, you know, the fiery lake or whatever it is. He goes through the dead marshes, which is really gruesome. The giant spider, the orcs, the goblins, the ring wraiths. He climbs Mount Doom. He sneaks in there. He's on the precipice of completing the mission. No one thought he could do. All he has to do is take the ring off and throw it in. And here's what he says. I have come, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. Listen to this. The ring is mine. He failed. He, it's not, the only reason he succeeds is because Gollum attacks him, bites his finger off, and ends up falling in backwards. Right? I mean, that's the only reason. But he, he, can't, he went through so much. 
But Frodo failed. See, no one, no one is immune from failure. And I mean nobody. And so I looked at the text and I did a little detective work. I wondered what, with all the benefits he had and all the blessings of his background, why did he turn back? Why did he turn back? If you have your Bible, and if you don't, you can just listen to me. If you look in map number seven, turn the back of your Bible if you have maps. Map number seven is usually the map of the first and second missionary journeys of Paul. And when you'll find out here, let me give this to you. If this is Israel, okay, off the northern coast of Israel is the island of Cyprus. Cyprus, when they landed, there's a town on the east side closest to the shore of Israel called Salamis. And then if you walk across the island, all the way across the other side is the one mentioned in our text. It's called Paphos. Well, that's what they do. Barnabas and, and Paul and John Mark, they go over to Cyprus. Now, look, look. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and 36 that Barnabas was from Cyprus. Okay? So let me put it together for you. When they leave Israel and go across the island, they're going to home territory for Barnabas. I mean, and as being his cousin, they probably had family there. They had relatives there. They had been there many times. Barnabas was born and raised there. He had familiar people that he could go to. It was a safe place to go. And so here is John Mark. He feels really good. I'm going on a missionary trip. I know these people. I've been here before. This is good stuff. I'm not even that far from Israel, from home, right? But he gets there, and this guy comes up, Elianus the sorcerer, or the magician, really, who he is. And he, he's, he's a wicked guy. And maybe he got a little afraid. Maybe he got a little scary. It was a little too close for comfort. It, it, was, it bothered him. So after a while, they, they leave Paphos, and they're going to go across the strait right there, the body of water, and they get off at Perga. And Perga is a place in Pamphylia, which is Asia Minor. And as soon as they get off the boat on the other side, here's what the Bible says in Acts 13, 13. John left them. He left them. I mean, he got a little bit too far out of familiar territory. The risks were maybe a little bit too great. And here's, remember, he runs back. He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to his mom, back to his house. See that garden run he made when the soldiers grabbed him? See, he started maybe a habit. And so maybe he's doing, it could be, listen, because no one is immune from it. See, there might be some here this morning, you're an adult, maybe you're a young person, a young adult, a teenager, and it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to go to school and not make it known that you're a Christian. It's easy to be at your job and not use the opportunities that God gives you to speak of the gospel. It's easy not to bring up any conversations about religion or anything about what you believe on certain issues. Why? Because it gets a little risky, doesn't it? I mean, it's a little risky to tell people what you really believe about that when you be the only one who does it. That you believe in God and eternal life and Jesus is the only way. I mean, you're a little narrow, aren't you? I mean, in all this, the tension that's going on today and the positions that you might hold as a believer, it's unfamiliar territory. And it's easy, isn't it? Far easier to turn around and go the other way. Paul, in the chapter we read in 15, says, I don't want to take him with us. You know why? Because he left us when we were going to the work. Because standing up for Jesus and speaking out for Jesus and living for Jesus publicly was quite another thing than when you do it privately. And for John Mark, it was a turning point, and it wasn't a good one. 
because he began to go down the road of failure. He left them. And the word left them in 1313 of Acts means to go away from. It means to withdraw. It, it really means this, literally, to put some distance between you and the problem. And that's exactly what he did. And so that's what we do. We kind of hide out. And we put some distance between us and really taking a stand for Jesus and speaking out from him. And we kind of turn away and we want to get out of there as much as we can And we fall into the same trap that John Mark does. We come to church, and we have a Bible-believing church, and we have a great fellowship filled with great people, and you may have grew up your whole life in this church. But now other issues and other things begin to distract you and pull on you and your friends, and you want to be popular, and, and you begin to run away and put some distance between you and church and God and standing for him. Beware, beware, because here's the first fact about failure. It makes no exceptions. No one is immune from it. But the second one is even more dangerous. And that is the second fact about failure is this. It can be repeated. If indeed John Mark was the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers grabbed him and he left his coat and ran, it was just the beginning of that trend. Because the second time when he gets to Perga, he travels over and again he's worried about himself and what's happening and what he does in the missionary work and what it's going to cost him. See, his own cousin Barnabas and Paul, they're going to keep going. But he, the Bible says, he turns back. He turns back and repeats the same thing he did when he was earlier as a young man. There are a lot of trite sayings about failure and you might have heard them. Um, failure is the best teacher. Learn to fail forward. It almost makes failure exciting, doesn't it? Many people do learn, and maybe you and I have at t- sometimes. We learn through our failures. But can I say to you this? It's not inevitable. Just because you fail does not mean that you are going to learn from it, i.e. Charlie Brown. Why in the world does he keep trying to kick the football. She takes it out from under him every time without fail, but he keeps trying. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Abraham Lincoln, did you know that he went into the military as a captain and he was demoted numerous times and when he went out of the military, he was a private, the lowest rank. Do you know he started numerous businesses, Abraham Lincoln did, all of them failed. He went bankrupt twice and before he became president, he he lost 26 political races in a row. Failure over and over again in his life. I was a big fan of Michael Jordan when I was a kid. And this may be past what you remember. But Michael Jordan had a commercial one time about his career. And it's interesting how he framed it. He said, and this is I quote, I missed 9,000 shots in my career. I lost 300 games. 26 occasions I have been trusted to take the game-winning shot. And I missed. I have failed he says, over and over and over again, and that's why I succeed. Now see, Michael Jordan would tell you, hey, I missed all those shots, important games, but see, I learned from my failures, and that's what made me a champion. But can I say this? That's not true of everybody. Because failure in the Bible, here's the warning, that you can repeat it over and over again and never really learn from it. Abraham lied about his wife once, It almost got him and her in big trouble. And you'd think that would be enough, but it wasn't very long later that Abraham lied about his wife again. 
Jacob grew, in a, grew up in a home in the Old Testament in Genesis where his dad favored Esau. He liked the outdoorsman. He liked that he brought him game from, and all the cooking he did. He liked how manly, manly he was. Jacob wasn't quite that same person by any stretch. And he grew up in a family where it caused all kinds of problems between Jacob and his mom, between him and Jake, Esau. It was a problem because his dad showed favoritism. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that when he grew up and got married and had his own kids, the last thing he would ever do, really, would favor anybody, any of his children. But what do we find him doing? He favors Joseph. He gives him the coat of many colors. And it's a huge problem between Joseph and all of his brothers. So much they want to kill him and they end up selling him into slavery. He, he never learned. He repeated exactly what his dad did. The disciples... They watched Jesus, they listened to him, and twice in the Bible it says they didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000, they didn't understand the feeding of the 4,000, not once but twice, the same miraculous event, and they didn't get it, and they asked Jesus questions. Maybe he's upset because we don't have bread. They, They just never really got the lessons. And over and over the disciples repeat that same misunderstanding. Peter quotes a proverb in 2 Peter 2.22, and it goes like this. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. He says, you know what's true about some dogs and about pigs? They're in the, they throw themselves in the mud, and they get all dirty, and then you clean them off, and you know what they do? They repeat it all over again. They go right back to it, right? Let me ask you, has that happened to you? Is that happening to you? I've talked to so many young ladies and older ladies in my life who keep dating the same kind of guys. The guys that they can control, the guys who are weak, the guys who don't really have much of an interest in God, they don't have a lot of character, and they're easy to control. And they think that that's the kind of thing that they want to have, some guy that they can dictate to. What, and, and I keep telling them, this is not the kind of guy for you. It's not what you really, you think so because you want to control him. And over, and, and they, they date this guy, and at times they marry this guy, and then they marry the next guy, and the next guy, and they're, and they're all the same guy. Why? Because you know what happens? Failure. We keep repeating it over and over again. I endlessly have talked to teenagers and even adults. You keep choosing the same kinds of friends over and over again. Friends who don't really have any interest in God. They're not interested in pushing you towards spiritual things. And they are completely creatures of our culture. And they they don't want you to obey your parents. They don't want you to adopt the standards of the Bible and do the things of God. They're interested in you being all about you and doing your own thing and putting all that religious stuff aside. And then you wonder why your life is what it is. But you keep making the same choices. See, I've talked to people even on, on a personal level about their job. They get a job. It's a pretty decent job. But after time, they stop disciplining themselves and they don't show up on time to work and they call out all the time and they don't give a good day's work when they are there. And then they kind of wonder why after a few months that their job lets, their boss lets them go. And then they have to try to find another job and on and on and on. It's like a cycle, but they keep repeating that same failure over and over again. You diet, New Year's resolution, you're going to exercise. Two weeks later, which I've done for the last 10 years, you keep doing it, right? I'm, gonna get, I'm serious this time. I really am. I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to exercise, right? 
You keep telling God and yourself, I'm really going to get dedicated this time. I'm going to read my Bible, Jesus. I'm going to really pray. And you might buy a new journal. And God, I'm going to be at church service. I'm not going to just be Sunday morning only. I'm going to come to all the services. And listen, I'm going to do ministry. I'm going to get involved. And you may even talk to someone who's a leadership leader of a ministry. And this time, it's going to be different. And it isn't. It isn't. Something else comes up and you, your friends want you to go here and this isn't as convenient as you thought and the sacrifice would be too much and we leave it just like John Mark left them. See, if you're going to face failure and handle it biblically, you're going to have to know these facts, right? It makes no exceptions, none whatsoever. And here's the second thing, it can be repeated. Thirdly, and, and if you have failed in any significant way, you know this to be true. It's always painful. Always. Whether you're the one who has failed or someone else who has failed you. In the text that we read earlier, if you turn back to Acts 15, in verses 37 through 39, it's another journal entry into the biography of a failure. Paul and Barnabas have finished their first missionary journey in their pretty soon going to start off on their second missionary journey. They've been back to visit with the Jerusalem council and to report on them and to get some things straight about the gospel. And now they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. And and Barnabas says in verse 37, here's what I think. I think we should take John Mark. In other words, Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. Here's a guy, and praise God for people like this. He wants to give his cousin John Mark a second chance. Aren't you glad for those kind of people? People who see the best in you despite the shortcomings and failures that you've had. They don't just see you by all the things that they don't like about you or the disappointments. So, and Barnabas is that kind of a guy. He wants to take John Mark and give him, but not Saul, not Paul. The Bible says in verse 38, Paul thought it not best to take John Mark. I don't think it's because Paul's bitter or he's holding a grudge. Here's what I think, because in the text, the word thought means this worthy. He didn't think at this point that John Mark had enough time passed that he had learned from his failures. He did not see in him that he had overcome those tendencies to quit and give up or run from his problems. So he said, he's not the right guy. Not now. And so there was a problem Their distinction or their division over it is so strong that they separate from one another. Barnabas takes John Mark, and by the way, in the text, did you notice where they go? They go to Cyprus. They went back to home so he could get John Mark comfortable again. But Paul and, and Silas, the new partner, they go off to the places they've been before to strengthen the churches. Imagine what John Mark feels like if he's standing there while his cousin Barnabas is standing up for him, knowing he doesn't have, he has a pretty much little ground to argue in his favor. And here's, here's the greatest missionary, the greatest Christian of all time standing there. And he says, Paul says, I don't want you to come. Imagine feeling that. That's painful, isn't it? 
I mean, John Mark by now has to know that his failure has been disappointing to God. It's been disappointing to his cousin, certainly to himself. And now he's disappointed the Apostle Paul, who he probably greatly admires and respects. And on top of all of that, they had to make it public because the Bible says they had to go back and the church recommended Paul and Silas, not Barnabas and John Mark. So not only is he really disappointed in his failure all the people he loves and cares about, but now the whole church that he's been growing up in, they all know about it, and they haven't sanctioned his work. Disappointing, isn't it? Always brings painfulness, pain, sorrow, grief, doubt. Ask Moses. 40 years in the wilderness with this rabble, that's what he called them, the Israelites always barking against him, always griping and complaining about every part of his leadership, trying to stone him on more than one occasion. He stuck, he stuck with him 40 years in the wilderness and all that he went through. And on, on one day, he gets so angry at them. Mind you, the meekest man on the planet, power under control, he loses it one time. But it was public and he took God's glory from him and he struck the rock twice and God says, you'll look over in the border but you'll never go in. Imagine what that failure cost him. Imagine the pain of all of those years climaxing and being the one to lead them in and it won't be you. King David, the man after God's own heart, slew Goliath, a national hero, wrote psalms, all of these things. But in a moment when he should have been out at war, he was on the roof of a house. He sees Bathsheba. He commits adultery. And can I tell you this? And his life never got put back together from it. It affected him mentally, emotionally. Read the Psalms for yourself. It affected him physically. It affected him as far as his reputation goes and his political sway in Israel and it affected his family. His family never recovered from it. The punishment was that the sword would never leave his house. Can you not know that failure is painful? And some of you are on the verge of it and you're going to wreck your marriage. And, and as a teenager, you're going to bring pain into your family, into your parents' life and, and it may never fully recover from it. See, failure is always painful Failure to be faithful to your spouse ends up in divorce, shatters the lives of your children. Failure to be faithful financially to God and to your family ends up in having to sell the house or being evicted from your apartment. Failure to keep your word, failure to live out the integrity that God has called to you has ruined relationships and friendships so that they no longer exist and the loneliness sets in because failure is always painful. Ask Peter, who when Jesus needed him the most, you know what he did? Triple failure. Not once, not twice, three times he denied Jesus. Imagine the pain when the Bible says, no words, Jesus looked over at Peter, just looked at him, and the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. The pain, the pain that always follows failure. Those are hard ones to swallow, aren't they? All those three facts. I mean, if we only had those three facts, whew, failure would be rough, and, and not to mention that it really is. But that's not the, there's one more. There's a fourth fact about failure. And, and let me preface it with this. 
A blowout does not have to be a knockout in your life. A blowout does not have to be a, blo- a knockout in your life. And, and here's the fact about failure. It does not have to be final. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be what defines your life. It, you don't have to let it become your identity. Can I just real quickly, before we close, can I give you the chronology of John Mark's life and his failure? In Acts 15, where he went back and they argued and Paul and Barnabas split, that was A.D. 49. Later on, and don't turn there, read them for yourself, Colossians 4 and verse 10 says, Paul writes this in Colossians. He says, and if John Mark comes to where you are, greet him and welcome him. Wow, what a change. Philemon chapter 1, because there is only one, verse 24. You know what John Mark is described as by the Apostle Paul's pen? A fellow worker. That was AD 60, 11 years later. AD 63, Peter writes at the end of his epistle and greet John Mark, my son. So he not only has made things right with Paul, but now Peter has taken him under his tutelage to the point where he can say, here's the guy that I'm investing in and training him for the ministry. And the last words of the Apostle Paul ever written that we have in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, he says wonderful things. Listen to this. And bring Mark with you. Get Mark and bring him for he is useful to me for ministry. Do you hear that? Odzios, he was unworthy before, and, and, and now, here, here's what he goes, from useless to useful. You see that? But can I tell you this? It took 15 years. And Paul says he's useful, and he was so useful, God agreed, and a year later, in AD 65, he wrote the Gospel of Mark that we have in our Bible. I mean, is that not a fantastic, complete reversal? I mean, is that not one of the most wonderful things that you're ever going to hear? I mean, a complete reversal from where he was. He goes from gospel failure to gospel writer. Seriously? I mean, that's something that you could write a book about. Oh, yeah, he did. Failure does not have to define us. But here's why. Not because we will never fail again, because we will. But because here's how God defines us, not by our failures, but by our faith. You know, everybody reads Hebrews 11, and rightfully so, we call it the hall of faith. We never call it the hall of failures, do we? But read the list of people in there. Almost every one of them had a huge failure. But how does God see them? He doesn't see them primarily, not because he dismisses it or forgets it or overlooks it. No, but you know how God sees his people? Not primarily by their failures, but by their faith. And you may say, Pastor Walker, come on. You know, if you knew what I did, you know some of the choices I've made. If I, could, if I could tell you my failures, you wouldn't say useful would be the outcome of my life. You're wrong. You're wrong. God sees you far different than you could ever imagine. He doesn't see only the places where you've dropped the ball and made selfish, sinful choices and how you've hurt other. He sees those things. But you know the lens through which he sees them? His son. The lens of the cross, see? And he sees you in the faith that you have and the faith that you can have if you would come to him 
for forgiveness because here's what our God is like. He's the God who offers forgiveness to failures. Forgiveness. And aren't you glad? Because that is the need of every one of us in this room. No matter what size failure, no matter how many times, no matter what kind of failure they are, we are failures in need of forgiveness, and that's what our God is all about. I'm going to close, maybe anticlimactically, but I'll take my chance. Do you know how John Mark changed? You know how he made the change from useless to useful? You know how he made the change? Because people invested in his life. Listen, Paul invested eventually in his life quite a bit, and saying no to him was an investment. Barnabas, his family member, cousin, invested in his life, and when no one else believed in him, Barnabas did. Peter invested in his life. Do you see that? He adopted him, and and, and most commentators believe that Mark's gospel was the very first gospel, and the main contributor and eyewitness to almost every account that Mark wrote about in his gospel was Peter. That's where he got his information. Peter took the time to invest in John Mark's life, and because of it, we have a gospel after his name in our Bible. Can I tell you this? You know why we we do D groups and small groups at Faith Baptist Church? We do it because all of us are failures and we need people to invest in our lives. Because that's where the real change comes from. If you're not in a small group and you're not in a D group, can I tell you this? You're going to face failures, but you don't have to face them by yourself. You can have somebody who's investing in you and cares about you and loves you. It's going to walk you through it so that you can go from useless to useful for the glory of God. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, maybe you're here this morning or you're watching over the live stream and you say, Pastor Walker, I keep repeating the same thing over, the failures, the sinful choices, the relationships, the job. And you've come to the realization this morning is because In your failure, you have no faith. And by that, I mean faith in Jesus. You've never come to the realization that King Jesus is the only one who forgives sins. And through his cross, death, and resurrection, and your submission to his lordship, see, he can change your life. Oh, I do mean for eternity that you die and go to heaven. But can I tell you that? Beyond that more, he can change your life right now. That you can worship his glory. You can live the life he designed you to live. You can take up your cross and live out his cruciform ways in all of your life, in all of your relationships. It can change, not because you'll never fail again, but you'll live out what really identifies you in his mind, faith. If you've never trusted him, never put your hope in him, you can do that this morning. And we'd love to have you come by the office, come by the church, call us, set up an appointment. We'd love to take the scriptures with you and show you how you can have eternal life in his name. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you follow Jesus, but you say, Pastor Walker, I haven't been handling my failure biblically. Those four facts have not been factors in the way I respond, but they need to be. They need to be. You know what? There's forgiveness for your failure. There's still usefulness for you if you'll let Jesus in. Father, We pause to say thank you. Blessed be your name.
the forgiver of failures, that in Jesus Christ and his cross, death, and resurrection, we have hope that things can be different. Thank you for the example of John Mark and how you changed his life, the complete reversal. Do that in the lives of your people as they submit even their failures to you. And we'll bless you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.